0: Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Let's open up our Bibles to Numbers, the 15th chapter. We're going to begin in the Old Testament this evening in Numbers, chapter 15. And as you can see on the screen behind me, this is Q&A night. For any first-timers for Q&A night. Give you just a brief synopsis. Once a month, I get the opportunity to, to field some questions, not live on the spot, but questions that have been submitted to me beforehand by various folks. Usually it's from folks here uh, of our own number. And then it is my privilege and opportunity to then try to, to, to study and to put together what I hope are some thoughtful and, and, and true and correct answers that are in line with the Word of God. And this evening I am dealing with two kind of broad questions, but two questions that tend to kind of travel together. I've been asked to deal with the subject of capital punishment and war. What does the Bible say about these two issues? What does the Bible say about these two oftentimes very hot-button issues about administering capital punishment and about nations going to war? I'm pretty eager to dive into these questions this evening, and so I'll just issue a very abbreviated howdy doody. Good to see you. Hope you had a good afternoon, but I'm glad that you're here tonight. Let's get down to business. In Numbers four, excuse me, Numbers 15. Let's read together in verse 32. In Numbers 15, and in verse 32, the Bible says there that while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody, because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, That man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses." I'm going to start this evening with that question about capital punishment because many of the truths that we will outline and we will observe on that subject will then kind of help flow seamlessly and transition over to the question about war. Let's talk about capital punishment. Our country, throughout its history, has really swung to kind of some very far extremes when it comes to capital punishment. In frontier days, there was lots of capital punishment. Justice was swift, it was direct, and oftentimes it came at the end of a rope. But of course, over time, particularly I'm thinking in the last 40 or 50 years or so, there's been a strong reaction against capital punishment, against the death penalty. Maybe that's because of some of the famous cases that have been handed down where an innocent person was put to death. And so people got really uneasy about the idea of putting to death various people for various crimes. The Supreme Court actually outlawed capital punishment as unconstitutional in June of 1972. But various states found ways to kind of bring it back and enacted it in ways that were constitutionally allowed. As a result, by the end of the 1970s, the death chambers in Florida... Georgia, and Texas were back open and operational. Today, 31 states in the Union uphold the death penalty, and yes, Kentucky is one of those states. But many of those states, even though many of them uphold the death penalty, many of those states are very, very reluctant to practice it. In fact, last year, in 2016, only 20 executions took place in the entire United States which was actually the lowest total that that's been in the last 25 years. In most states, that process of getting to an execution, it takes years. From the moment a person is tried and convicted and sentenced, it is years and years before that person actually makes it to the electric chair the gas chamber or whatever it is. In Kentucky... I actually got on the website last night. There are about a little over 30 uh, men who are on death row right now waiting to be officially uh, executed. In Kentucky, there are actually offenders who have been on death row since 1980. That's nearly 40 years. Now, of course, in all of this, what Christians want to know is Christians simply want to know, is capital punishment wrong? How should we feel about capital punishment biblically? How does God feel about the subject of capital punishment? Well, in the passage we just read here in Numbers chapter 15, it seems pretty clear where God stands on this issue. God has said specifically, I want people executed for certain crimes. And I hope that even as I say that, I hope that that does not come as a surprise or a shock to you. Because of what's said all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 9. Would you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9? This is during the time of Noah. And this is when God has hit the reset button on planet earth. He has destroyed everyone and everything with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals that were there on the ark. And as soon as Noah gets off the ark, one of the very first things that God says to Noah is this. In Genesis chapter 9 and in verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. What God says here is he says that human beings have been created as unique and as special amongst all of God's creation. And as a result, for a human being to take another human being's life unjustly, that is an affront to God. And what God then expects is He expects that the highest possible penalty will be extracted in those situations. Now I should say, if you'll be turning to Leviticus chapter 20, I should say that this principle, this truth about God expecting blood to be shed in certain crimes, that's not just for cases of murder. I want you to understand that. In the Old Testament, we actually see people being executed for a number of different crimes that were committed. We already read the verse to start out with about the guy who broke the Sabbath, and God said, he needs to be put to death. Then look here in Leviticus chapter 20, look in verse 27. In Leviticus 20, verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer, this is somebody that's involved in like the occult and witchcraft, they shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. I want you to see from that that it was not just murder for which people were put to death in Bible times. There were other crimes for which God required that that offender be executed. Now, having read just those few passages there, it seems extraordinarily difficult for me to make any kind of case that God is in opposition to the death penalty. I believe there are very few things that the Bible speaks so explicitly and so forcefully about. When we talk about this subject, I don't believe we're having to deduce from some kind of a a broad and general principle and trying to figure out what God wants there. We're not having to stitch together a half dozen or a dozen different passages to try to ascertain the will of God. No, God is clear on this. At a time when God gave civil legislation to His people... Capital punishment was a huge part of that. And I know what somebody's going to say right about here. They're going to say, Josh, now you realize every verse you just put up there is from the Old Covenant. And that is exactly right. And we don't live under the Old Covenant. And that too is exactly right. Which is why, if you'll turn to the New Testament now, to the book of Romans in Romans chapter 13, Paul actually is going to build on those very ideas that we've already noticed here in the Old Testament. And what Paul is going to say is he's going to say that God has actually established civil authorities, civil government, and that God has given those authorities the right to execute criminals. In Romans 13, look in verse number 1. These are important passages and they're worth us reading all of them together. In Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities. I want to just say right here, you realize that Paul wrote this at a time when he was living under one of the most corrupt and evil governments known to man, the Roman government. And yet Paul still says, Be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists what God has appointed. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Our civil authorities have been granted the right. Actually, I'll take that up another notch. They have been given the obligation to administer justice on evil doers. And I would even be so bold as to say that when our rulers and our, our authorities and the people who are, who are in you know, charge of governmental kinds of things, when they don't meet that obligation, they will have to answer to God for that. In fact, when Paul found himself kind of entangled and embroiled with some Roman officials and some civil authorities of his day, if you'll find Acts chapter 25, I want you to notice that Paul, Paul shows no reluctance at all To have the death penalty enacted even on himself. In Acts chapter 25, as Paul is fixing, he's fixing to make his appeal to Caesar. In Acts 25, look in verse number 11. In Acts 25 and verse 11, Paul says there, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Do you notice that there? Paul does not say, and I'll tell you what, you guys, you guys don't need to be putting me in handcuffs, and you guys don't need to be talking here about the death penalty and those sorts of things, because you know what? That's wrong. Capital punishment, that is against God's will. No! Paul didn't say anything like that. Paul says just the opposite. Paul says that evildoers who deserve to die ought to die. And what Paul says is he says, that's within the will of God. And if I'm living like an evildoer, doing things that are worthy of death, then you can put me to death. That would be God's will. It seems to me then, as we put all of these things together, it seems to me that the, the conclusion is really just inescapable. Government has the authority and actually has the responsibility to exact punishment, and that may even mean capital punishment on criminals who are deserving of death. Now, having said all of those things, you should know that there are people who still would want to argue with what the Bible says about all of that. And so you'll hear just a whole litany of different objections uh, to this particular line of reason. And so, for example, someone will say, "Well, well, what if the person is innocent? You arrest somebody, you try them, You know, the, the jury makes a mistake or the judge makes a mistake and they're found guilty and they're executed and they were innocent and they didn't even do anything wrong. What about that? And to be fair, that's not just some hypothetical scenario. That actually does happen. That actually has happened. We're innocent people. They have been put to death for crimes that they did not commit. But what I would say about that is this. No one is in favor of executing innocent people. That is not what we are talking about here. The Bible is not advocating the execution of innocent people by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, if worrying about punishing an innocent person, if that means that you can't punish people, well then what that means is that means you can't send people to to prison either. Because there have been people who've been sent to prison. In fact, for very, very long times, who were later found out that they weren't even guilty. They didn't do anything wrong. And so they were exonerated and they were released and DNA evidence was provided and their record was made clear. And so I guess if we're worried that a judge or a jury of a person's peers, that they're going to make a mistake, then what that means is is that that we can't punish anybody for anything. But in the Bible, in the Bible, that worry is addressed. Did you know that? Look in Numbers chapter 35, please. In Numbers chapter 35, the law actually gave instructions on how to administer the death penalty. Here's some kind of some 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 requirements, some specifications that need to be in place before you go around executing people. That it's not to be done lightly. It's not to be done frivolously. It's not to be done just hastily. Instead, Numbers 35 says in verse 30, Numbers 35 verse 30, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You know what that says to me? That says to me that the Lord understands just how serious capital punishment is. Executing someone, that's irreversible. You know, when you put somebody in jail for a long time and they didn't deserve to be there, I mean, you can say you're sorry and you know you can reimburse that person financially and give them punitive damages and all that stuff. But when you execute somebody, there's no way that you can undo that. Which means then, and it's what God points out here, great care needs to be taken in that. Great care needs to be taken in determining the guilt of the offender. That there needed to be witnesses. Did you notice it was plural? You can't just execute somebody just based on one witness. There needed to be witnesses. There needed to be clear and convincing evidence that had to be provided so that we know, we know this person is guilty. I want to say again, no one is advocating the execution of innocent people. We're not talking about executing someone for which there's just like, you know, lots of unanswered questions. We've got lots of doubts. There's lots of uncertainty in those cases. The Bible doesn't, it's not in favor of that. But if, on the other hand, when there is no question, when a person's guilt has been firmly established, for example, when a murderer confesses to his wrongdoing, then that person can be, and according to Scripture, that person ought to be put to death. Somebody else might say, well, i tell you what, Josh, i tell you what the problem is with capital punishment. The problem with capital punishment is is it's not a true deterrent against crime. When you put people to death, that doesn't deter crime. That, of course, is false. Capital punishment is absolutely a deterrent against crime. See if you can follow my logic here. No criminal who was ever executed has ever committed another crime ever. Everybody follow that? Does that make sense? No criminal who has ever committed a crime, particularly like a violent crime, has ever committed another violent crime again after they are executed. We talked this morning about those criminals there in Luke chapter 23, those men who were crucified on either side of Jesus. When those guys died... All of the things that they had done, their acts of civil disobedience and rebellion and whatever other kinds of evils that they were perpetrating against that society, all of that came to a grinding halt the day that they died. When a serial killer is arrested and tried and is found guilty of their crime, someone who's killing people unmercilessly and just, just without any remorse, and the state decides they're going to put that person to death, that person's serial killing comes to an immediate stop. That's it. He is deterred from ever committing another crime again. Please do not tell me that capital punishment is not a deterrent against crime. That's just not true. And maybe the most important thing that I would say about that particular objection is you just have to argue with the Lord about that. That's just really at the end of the day what I'm just going to have to say. God gave this right to civil government. He invested that right, that obligation to civil authorities. God clearly sees that there is some value to capital punishment. And so when somebody says, well, you know, I just don't get it. I just don't see the good that comes from that. Well, I just want to say, you just need to talk to God about that. Let God know how you feel about that. If God says it has value, maybe what you need to do is stop listening to your own wisdom. Maybe you just need to subject yourself to the wisdom of God. Which would then lead someone to make this wonderful argument. And that is, but Josh, the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. Come on, you're up there spouting all kinds of Bible. What about what the Bible says, thou shalt not kill? Two wrongs don't make a right. Let's not make this situation worse by killing the killer. And I will admit to you, that sounds pretty, pretty convincing, doesn't it? That's a very cleverly worded argument and it's easy for us to kind of go following down that rabbit hole. But I want to say here that quoting the Ten Commandments as thou shalt not kill, that's actually a misquote of Scripture. Look in Exodus chapter 20 with me please. In Exodus chapter 20, if you're reading from a King James Bible, I'm sorry but you're not going to get this. For the rest of us though, we will get it. In Exodus chapter 20, what you will find in verse 13 is not, Thou shalt not kill. We've already read several passages where God actually ordered killing. So we know that that can't be true. Exodus 20 verse 13 actually says, Thou shalt not murder. Murder. And yes, that is a specific term that means the unjust taking of innocent life. Homicide, taking someone's life in cold blood. And I want you to please understand here that words do matter. Think about just in our own terminology. When we say, he was executed, that is very, very different from saying he was murdered. We get that, don't we? We understand that in our vernacular and in our language. Both of those terms, yes, they both denote a form of killing, but they have entirely different meanings, entirely different intentions, entirely different purposes. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm up here just bashing against the King James. I wrote an article on the front of the bulletin where I kind of bashed the King James this morning talking about that misquotation of the word Easter in Acts chapter 12. But those translators back in 1611, they really haven't done us a whole lot of favors by just using that broad general term of kill when the more accurate translation is the word murder. God says, don't Murder. Executing a guilty criminal, that's not murder. Finally then, would you find the book of Ecclesiastes, please? In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we spent last year in the wisdom literature, and I want to lean upon the wisdom literature here to close this point about capital punishment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the wisdom literature is filled with so much just good stuff, just timeless wisdom. And here is some wisdom that I believe is sorely needed in our day and time. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the wise man says in verse number 11, Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That passage talks about justice. It talks about all justice being dispensed by government and how that needs to be done in a timely fashion. And what God's people should desire is for the good and the safety of all is that laws should be equitably and fairly enforced. That evildoers should be punished. They should be punished swiftly and why? So that all can see and all can learn from their example. And yes, that does include evildoers who commit horrible crimes that are worthy of death. Now, having set forth all of these truths about capital punishment and kind of putting those things before us, that really gives us a really good head start to talk about the questions that we sometimes have about war. And it certainly is very timely to to be asking and to be thinking about war considering that like in just the last couple of weeks, the United States has taken some very strong military action over in the Middle East and Syria and some of those places. And so we're wondering about that. We're thinking about that. What does the Bible say about war? Is that something that is acceptable? Well, let's just start really where we started when we talked about capital punishment. Let's just start by pointing out that God has commanded war. He has commanded war numerous times throughout biblical history. If you've been following along in the Bible reading program this year, there's just no way you could miss that. Because we've been reading in the Old Testament, we've been reading about the journeys of the Israelites as they're working their way through the wilderness and they're working their way into the promised land. Now we're here in the middle of the time of Judges. There's just war going on all the time. And it's not war that the Israelites just going around, hey, let's just go pick a fight with these folks. No! Most, if not all of those, are wars that God sanctioned. And there's a lot of places we could go, but I'm just going to go to one place. Let's use that passage there in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is Saul's charge that he's been given by God to go out into battle against the Amalekite nation. And so Samuel comes to Saul and he gives him these instructions. This is actually the second time Samuel's having to give Saul these instructions. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and in verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and he said... Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. If you're reading from the NIV, that verse is even more plain and direct. It says, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Those are the directives of God. God did not just condone war. God ordered war. And did you notice as we were reading there in that verse that that war did include killing. It included the utter destruction of that nation, those territories, and yes, the people who lived in them. Which brings us right back to that point that we concluded with just a moment ago on capital punishment. The point that we made about killing versus murdering. Killing in war is not the same as murder. Biblically, killing is not the same as murder. If you're still here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, just bump back up to the top of the chapter. Look in verse 3. In verse 3, this is where God gives the original command to Saul and tells him what he needs to do. In 1 Samuel 15, look at verse 3. He says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You see that word kill there in verse 3? That is the Hebrew term mouth or mooth. I heard different renderings of that, so I'm just going to go with mouth because I know how to say mouth. That word just simply means to be put to death. It means to execute. I want you to understand that that is a completely different word with a completely different meaning than the kind of killing that God had forbidden in the Ten Commandments. That word that we noticed in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 that's translated murder, the word is not, thou shalt not mouth or mooth. No, the word is, thou shalt not ratsack." I kind of like saying that word. I don't like what it means, but I like saying that. We're like, ah, there at the end of it, ratzak. And as we noted, that word, Ratsack, that's talking about murder. It's talking about malicious, intentional, cold-blooded murder. Which means then, as we piece all that together, what that means is that that means that God did not forbid all killing. Exodus 20, verse 13, is not a prohibition against all forms of killing. It is a specific prohibition against murder. And killing someone. In the line of duty, in military combat, that is not the equivalent of murder, biblically speaking. In fact, whenever we talk about the idea of killing in war, I believe we're actually talking about what we might call, in some of our terminology today, what we might call justifiable homicide, or maybe even accidental homicide. And I want you to know that God, in the Bible... God has actually recognized those types of cases. Would you find Numbers 35 again? In Numbers chapter 35, God in verses 16 down through verse 20 uh, 21, He said some very pointed stuff about how you are to deal with murderers. People who unjustly take innocent life. This is what you're supposed to do to those folks. But then in verse 22, He wants to begin a different section. Here's how you deal with people who kill others... And it's not murder. Verse 22, "...if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, or if he used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, he dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and he did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood." The congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And so here's a person maybe who maybe is acting in self-defense. He's acting in self-defense maybe to, to protect himself or to protect his family. That person is not condemned for doing that. He actually is justified in his actions. Or maybe here's a person who accidentally kills someone. There wasn't any malice there. There wasn't any enmity, as the text says. There was no premeditation involved in that. It was just an accident. He wasn't paying attention. He was looking the other way or carried a stone and he dropped it on the guy. That person, that person is not condemned. And I believe that when we think about times of war, I believe that's really kind of the two categories of death and killing that we're talking about. I believe that's the kind of killing that, generally speaking, takes place in wartime. You have soldiers, first of all who are putting their enemies to death, why? For the protection of their families, for the protection of their country, for the protection of the citizens of the country in which they live. And then secondly as well, you have folks who are killed, as in military terms is called collateral damage. That is, innocent people who were not necessarily the intended target for that attack, for that, for that gunfire, or for that explosion, but because they were in the proximity of that war, They ended up becoming casualties of the war. And I realize that it is that second kind of killing, that second kind of death, that second aspect of war. That's probably what troubles us the most about war. Whenever innocent and helpless people, particularly children, whenever they lose their lives. But I would simply say this, and I made this point a few weeks ago when I preached that sermon about people thinking God's a genocidal maniac because He ordered killing in the Old Testament. I would say this, sin carries with it some painful and some very unwanted consequences. And whenever evil people do evil things, sometimes it is the innocent who suffer the very most of those consequences. The truth is, war, whenever it is used to combat evil and to combat terror, war is completely entirely within the will of God. That's that passage that we noted earlier from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. That God gives civil government the authority to bear the sword, Paul says. And I don't think that's just talking about, you know, know, metaphorically. In Bible times, that could have meant literally bearing the sword to carry out God's wrath on evil doers. And while I may not agree, with every single decision that our president makes. I may not agree with every single decision that our senators and our congressmen make. The truth is this. The Bible says that those people in those positions, they have the right, they have the responsibility to punish evildoers. Yes, that would even include killing in war. In fact, if you're looking there at Romans chapter 13, look there at verse 3 again. In Romans 13 and verse 3, Paul says, in Romans 13 and verse 3, he says that civil government, they are designed to be a terror to evil works. A terror to bad conduct. Now, I want to say, I am not a warmonger. I am not someone who just delights and revels in bloodshed. But I also squarely recognize that the government cannot be a terror to evil works if we all just sit back and act like pacifists. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8 says that, yeah, there is a time for peace. But the wise man also goes on to say that there is a time for war. I understand. We want to strive to live peaceably with all men. If you're still there in Romans, Paul says that in the previous chapter, in chapter 12 and in verse 18. But did you notice in Romans 12 and verse 18, when Paul makes that statement... He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That is the ideal, to live peaceably with all men. Sometimes sometimes it is not possible to live peaceably with all men. And so God, in His infinite wisdom, He recognized and understood that. He understood the nature of human beings. He understood that that's how people would be. And so He established civil government to serve as an arm of protection as it inflicts justice and punishment on those who would do evil. Now, I do want to say one more thing in closing to wrap this point up. Would you find in Romans chapter 14, if you're still there in Romans, you just look across the page. In Romans chapter 14, just an important principle is laid out there. I want to say that if being involved in war, in just whatever manifestation, if that violates your conscience, If you're uncomfortable with serving as a soldier in the military, if you're uncomfortable serving as a police officer and you end up having to use maybe some deadly force as a police officer, if if maybe you're even just kind of, I don't know, kind of a little bit uneasy about some of the United States' dealings and the things that they're doing over in other countries and some of the things that we're doing militarily, you're just kind of uneasy about all of that. I want to say to you, that is totally fine. In Romans chapter 14, Paul discusses there some matters of personal judgment. And he says in verses 22 and 23, and he's talking here specifically about the eating of of meats, but I think we could plug in just a, a number of different issues into the context here. In Romans 14 and in verse 22, he says, "...the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats." Because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Do you have a problem with taking another person's life in combat? Well, then don't be a soldier. You don't have to be. We're not doing the draft, at least not yet. You don't have to be a soldier if you don't want to be. If you've maybe got some uncertainties about the U.S.'s involvement over in the Middle East and you know some of the, the, the dealings and the wars that are going on over there, You don't have to show up at some of the big war rallies on the battleships and those kinds of things. You don't have to do that. That's okay. There's room for you to have your own personal convictions about those things. But by that same token, let me flip the script here. Don't condemn others who hold different convictions. Don't condemn your brother who does sign up to be a part of the military, who decides that he wants to be in the Navy or he wants to be in the Air force. Don't condemn that sister who does believe that our government should be involved in some of the things that are going on in other countries and should be striving to be a terror to evil works. Don't condemn your brother, don't condemn your sister. As Paul said back up in verse 12 of that same chapter, he said, each one of us, each one of us will have a given, given account of himself unto God. Now I want to say one more time, I am not a warmonger. I am not a merchant of death. And, oh, I, just, I just want to see all these people killed. I just want to see all this bloodshed everywhere. I am not that guy. But I do believe that the Scriptures speak with some real clarity on these issues. And what we want to do day by day as we study and as we grow and as we come to a knowledge of the truth, we want our thinking to come more in line with God's thinking As He's revealed in His Word. Now, I told you I was eager to present this lesson tonight, and it's because I wanted to get in the Scriptures, but I really don't take any joy standing up here and talking about death, the justifications for war and capital punishment and those sorts of things. We sang a few minutes ago about that beyond this land of pardon, land beyond. We're looking forward to that place where there'll be no more pain, no more sickness, No more dying. It is troublesome to look around at the state of our world and we see the evil that's going on, the culture of death that we live in, that people just seem to revel in the bloodshed and the violence that's going on. The people of God, though, we are looking past this life. We're looking past this present reality. Our eye is toward heaven, toward that place where none of that wicked stuff is ever going to be. And so as we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, the question we want to ask is, are you prepared to go there? If the world were to end right now, if you were to die right now, would you be ready and be prepared to go to heaven? To be with the Lord for all of eternity? Have you been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? Have you obeyed the gospel? If you haven't, tonight's a good night to do that. I talked so long this morning about Jesus, about His sacrifice, about what that means. If you were here for that lesson, there there, there there really wasn't a whole lot more I could add to that as far as giving you just the fundamentals, the core message of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Do you believe that? Are you ready to act upon that? If so, let's do that and let's do it tonight. If you are a Christian but you're not living faithfully for the Lord, there's sin in your life, you're not being what you ought to be as a disciple of Jesus, Get it fixed, brother or sister. Repent. Ask God for His forgiveness in prayer. Let us pray with you and encourage you and help you to do better, serve the Lord in a better way. Look forward to that day where we can be in that land beyond. But let's do that by being prepared now. We can help you to be prepared. Make your way down front while we stand and while we sing.